and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and with me today we have a giantly full studio. It's so nice and cosy. We have Sarah O'Donnell. Good morning. Graham Thompson. Hello. Paula Simons. Good morning. And our education reporter, Janet French. Hi. She'll be here for a little while and then I believe you have to dash off, correct? Correct. We yeah. will set her free. Mm-hmm. So today is the You Can't Always Do What You Want edition. Why? Many reasons, as my mother would say. Uh, first off, you, it's good advice. <laughs> it's great advice for starters. Great, great life advice. You could also lose school funding. You could cop the criticism of an Olympic bronze medalist, or you might be told that no, you can't run for leadership of the PC party after all. <laughs> all of which we're going to talk about today. So, first of all, uh, Janet, let's get started here. Um, Why is it that some people in education can't always do what they want? Well, as we've talked about before on this podcast, there is a requirement by all schools and boards in this province to turn over policies promising that they will abide by the law to protect students, staff, and their family members in schools who might be LGBTQ. So there is a pair of schools that are run by a Baptist church. Uh, they're both on the outskirts of Edmonton. And uh, the minister, has, who is the school board chair of these schools, has said for some time that he's been asking the Minister of Education for an exemption from the law due to religious freedoms. And uh, now he's sort of gone one step further and said, yeah, we're just not going to follow the rules when it comes to uh, the requirements to be able to strike a GSA or having to strike a GSA when a student requests one. Uh, And also they have a problem with the idea that if a student joins a gay-straight alliance, that staff members can't tell their parents about it. So now we were at a school opening here in Edmonton yesterday and uh, this very question came up. Uh, what was the minister's response? He didn't seem, let's say, impressed with the stance of those schools. No. He he says he really needs to find out more, to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to say, that he hasn't talked to him directly. Not for lack of these schools trying. They have been asking to speak to the minister directly for more than a year, they say, about this to have themselves heard. The minister, sorry, the pastor is also one of the people involved in organizing these big protests, like the Bill 10 protest you would have seen in May outside the legislature. So what the minister said yesterday was that he realizes the urgency of the situation. He wouldn't say exactly what he's going to do. We've been sort of asking all week, like, what are you going to do about this? And he says, well, I have many options available to me under the school act. So then we asked, is is the funding at risk? And he said, well, I'm going to look at that really closely. That seemed the closest that he's actually come to saying this could cause an issue yeah, for them, right? I would say so. When he says he has a number of options, it's a bit like that ad campaign that Okotoks ran last year. There are a number of things you can do in Okotoks. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a number of things the education minister can do. But, you know, we have... The education minister has inherited one of the most unusual public education systems in the country. This is a province where we provide 70% funding to private schools, whether those are extremely expensive private schools for very affluent Calgarians, or whether these are uh, religious schools for very small religious denominations. And so, you know, I am torn. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms clearly guarantees freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. And I do not think, as a supporter of of rights for for, uh, LGBTQT students, I don't know that those rights can automatically trump the right of a private religious school to teach its religious teachings. 
but then you can't have it both ways. You can have absolute freedom from state interference in what you teach your children, but you can't have that while still having your cap out for generous funding. And I think that these very small private religious schools are going to have to make a choice. And if their profession of their faith is in such complete conflict with Alberta's human rights legislation, I think that they may be able to argue under the charter they have a right to teach their children according to the tenets of their faith. But you don't have a right to do that on the public dime. It is a bit of a kind of a preliminary question. Janet, I'm interested about whether or not any other schools have come forward and said that they're considering something similar. No, and none so vocally. And that's what I asked the minister yesterday. Is anybody else saying to you that you are, they're not doing this or they're not going to follow the law? And he said, no, he hasn't heard of any. At the same time, it seems like maybe the ministry has a bit of a backlog to go through. They've got 61 school boards, 13 charter schools, and a hundred-ish private schools to go through, you know, some of which are smaller and larger than others. And it seems like probably they did the the school board analysis first. And now some private schools are saying, well, they haven't heard anything from the minister, including this, these two schools, the Meadows Baptist Academy and Harvest Baptist Academy, say they haven't heard boo from the minister about whether their policies are acceptable or not. That's a real problem. Yeah. And, and you would have hoped that they would have done this work over the summer so that we could start September, I guess, with a clean slate, you know, and everybody would know what the expectations were and would know whether they did meet the grade, so to say, or not with their existing policies. So that, friends, is why you can't always do what you want in education, I suppose. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. I'll let you go and journalize. Okay, so some more people doing things that perhaps they can't always do. Graham, what was the big one that happened this week? Let me see. What could it possibly mm. be, they said, yeah. scratching their heads? You go back a few days and you've got Brian Jean making a speech. A town hall, one of his town hall meetings uh, across province tour in Fort McMurray. And uh, he got on the topic of um, seniors housing, seniors uh, lodge. Which has been a huge issue up there. Absolutely. And uh, he said, you know, I've been beating this drum for 10, 11, 12 years, I promise to keep on beating it, although it's against the law to beat Premier Notley. And he said it. <gasps> and, 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 then, and then complimented her for actually... Well, not... Well, hold on for yeah. a second. No, he, yeah. he says this. Then the, there's people in the room who applaud and, and laugh. Some, some were, giggled, yeah. And some went, oh. Uh, then the meeting moves on, and then later on, he comes to a few minutes later, he comes back to the podium and says, whoa, I shouldn't have said that. And then he says, he apologizes, talks about that woman, meaning Notley. Let's give her a round of applause for actually helping out on uh, Seniors Housing, Seniors Lodge. And then he says, and that was really tough to, to say. In other words, he calls her that woman, and then he's sort of saying reluctantly, I've got to give her uh, credit. So the problem is, of course, this goes wild because the media is actually recording it. They're there watching this speech, this address. And it goes on social media, and that's the end in terms of the apology does not go very far because people see him making a joke about physically beating Premier Notley. I had this whole Don Getty flashback. I know. Because okay, you, you and I are the only people that? left. Yeah. Graham, also, Graham also told me his Don Getty <laughs> flashback. So and, expl- and nutshell, explain it, because I didn't remember that. Quickly, in 1989, he called an election, and when he was making the announcement of the election, says Don Getty said... Um, 
I may abuse my wife, beat my children. I've never abused a seatbelt in my life because back then a big issue was uh, Oh, I seat, remember seat being told laws. about that. Yeah, that's a that's a great statement, hey? Yeah. So you, you flash forward and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you got uh, a politician. The thing is, and Gene has been trying so hard to present the Wild Rose as a, mo- a moderate conservative party, like socially conservative, sorry, but a moderate a 21st so- century issues. conservative party. Exactly. And then he says this. And, of course, he, he gets hammered on social media. And I, also he gets hammered by the government um, slams him. There's The PCs got up. The PCs. Sam and also Jansen. must be really galling for him. Jason, Jason Kenney I know. is the moderate who things. comes out <laughs> and for the second time in as many weeks basically and, and defends Notley against these attacks. Because a few weeks ago... Um, she was uh, part. It was a, a, a tweet, a photograph of her in the bullseye of a sniper's scope, and uh, as a, a critic of her, and uh, from a critic of hers. And Kenny came to her defense, said, "This is this is outrageous. These people should not be allowed to do this kind of thing. They should know better." And then you had Kenny again coming to the premier's defense after Jean had made this really horrible joke. And Kenny is saying, "This is not the Brian Jean I know, but this <laughs> this is this is a teachable moment. You got to do better in politics." Oh. And here is Jason Kenny, who is seen as very socially conservative, a right wing, yeah. divisive character, all of a sudden becoming the moderate. Although in a very conservative way, that he's going to defend, you know, defend the lady. I have to say, I think Rachel Notley, the way she handles these things, is brilliant. She never plays the victim card. If you know, while everybody else was setting their hair on fire. She said, well, you know, I was kind of bemused, but I accept his apology. I mean, she didn't for, she was far more restrained in her response to Brian Jean. And I think it plays brilliantly for her to appear above the fray as the adult in the room and as the person who she's going to accept him at his word that it was a a misstatement that he didn't, you know, that it just fell out of his mouth, which is, I think, what actually did happen. Um, You know, I have to say, I was on vacation most of this last week and I just sort of watched this I was trying to stay off Twitter and every now and again I would go on Twitter and I was trying to figure out like what like what did he say and maybe I was just unplugged too much last week but I read it and I thought okay that was a really 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 dumb thing to say but it's not like he planned out I mean it just I mean I think it really did just fall out of his mouth yeah the thing is Paula and and the context, you got Nate, Rachel Notley, who's been attacked, death threats on, online. Well, that is the problem. Uh, on the golf course, her effigy was used as a target and then run, run over by a golf cart. A few weeks ago, we mentioned this sniper scope photograph of her on Twitter. There's this sort of, um, this, this trend of people pointing towards Notley as a subject of physical violence. And then you've got the leader, the official opposition, who who walks himself right into that as well. Yeah, right. I, I have to wonder, in a, in a Freudian thing, is he worried that he won't be able to beat Rachel Notley in the other sense? Well, that's just that people are saying he meant beat her in the polls, beat her in the election. I don't think that's yeah. what he meant, but no. I'm wondering, sometimes, sometimes our brains say things. Yeah, that, I, I mean, I had some... S- First of all, he sh- he obviously shouldn't have said that. It's just a stupid thing to say. At the same time as someone who I say stupid things myself, and luckily there's not microphones around all the time. Well, not all the time. Them. Not yes. all the time. I so, but I had some sympathy for that. But he did get up and apologize, which I think was absolutely the right thing to do, and acknowledged it. But then, as Graham said, it, you know, it wasn't the smoothest of apologies. 
either. Um, so I don't know where he goes from here on this. I don't know if there does need to be, you know, more outre- outreach. No more outrage, please. But more outreach in terms of uh, working with the government on issues related to violence against women. I don't know. Or if that would just be seen as, oh, he's just doing this because he said something stupid and has to make up for it. And that's kind of kind of the thing here. It seemed to, instead of become a discussion, well, partly it became a, a larger discussion about the way women are treated in politics or the way women are kind of, you know, this undercurrent of sexism. But it didn't so much become that as Brian Jean, that guy, and there was a lot of anger directed towards him where maybe it was a slip of the tongue, maybe it was something. But at the same time, it was probably more reflective of this society that we are in. And, and you know, a very, very unfortunate kind of social media discourse that has evolved over the last five years. where Twitter's not always known for its reasonable, thoughtful discussions. But... But it, it, not it, always. <laughs> Sometimes, but, yeah. But I think, uh, you know, Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail has a piece today about, oh, is this the end of Brian Jean's career? And I thought, uh, no. Uh, I, 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 if it if it is, I think, I think that's a terribly dangerous thing too. I mean, Jean, a couple of months ago, uh, took to social media to condemn some of the kind of death threats that were being leveled against. Uh, Rachel Notley. He only did that after a fair bit of prompting from people on social media, myself included, to say, come on, you have to show some leadership, you have to step up here. And I think to me that's more important than what slipped out of his mouth, is the continual level of discourse, not just directed at Notley, but against other women in her cabinet, against women in the federal conservative party. I mean, it is not enough to say that's not nice, that's not polite. Uh, it, It is important that people show leadership and demonstrate that this kind of level of discourse is not the way to, you know, if, if you don't like Rachel Notley's carbon tax, if you don't like Rachel Notley's LBGQT policy, the correct way to attack those issues is not to say, I want her dead. I mean, you can say, I want her out of office. I'm going to campaign against her. I'm going to raise funds. But, you know, the idea that it is somehow acceptable in 2016 for public figures to talk about murdering their opponents, and we see it in the United States. I mean, uh, some of the discourse around Hillary Clinton, where people are on the record, Republican supporters of Donald Trump, and I don't mean yahoos on Twitter, I mean elected politicians holding office, are saying they want her assassinated, they want her executed, they want her hanged in the public square. You know, for, for Trump himself to have publicly mused about maybe Second Amendment people should take the law into their own hands if she's elected before she starts a people to the to the Supreme Court. I mean, this is a kind of toxic level of discourse that so far transcends uh, what uh, what Brian Jean said, and that's really what we have to to get. But to. I would still say though that <clears throat> you can't give them a pass in this because it have slipped out. No, because no. Th- there's a you trend know. here that maybe you have to push back maybe further and harder than you, maybe what's necessary to say we can't tolerate any of this. So it's a joke. We don't give you a pass. No, it was a very bad, tasteless, stupid joke. I'm not in any way defending him. As a preview to my good stuff, I mean, I'm going to recommend a piece by Nancy Peckford that the Ottawa Citizen ran, an op-ed. She's from Equal Voice. And she's got, you know, she has some advice for politicians, male politicians in particular, and it includes the most basic of suggestions like think before you speak. You know, does it comment add value to the issue I'm talking about? And I think that that's something we try and think about when we write and opinionize on things. And that's something that political leaders have to think about, too. That is really good advice for life. Absolutely. (laughs) 
She can't, always that on get, my can't always get what you want. <laughs> can't always say what you want. And sometimes the advice you should just keep to yourself too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Any final thoughts here? Oh, I'm, I wonder what's going to happen with this. You know, I think that time will heal this for Brian Jean to show. And maybe it does need him to do something more, and I hate this word, proactive, um, to actually show that he's, like as you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, we do know that when economic times are tough, that times get tougher for families and there, that there has historically been, I think, records of increased violence in families. There's increased friction. There's increased tensions, increased problems. So, you know, honestly, now would be a good time for all leaders to be talking about this and making sure that uh, families are getting the supports they need and uh, women are getting the supports they need if they are facing violence. What I, what I was very interested in as well as a whole part of this story is that Brian Jean hasn't commented and said, guys, I'm really sorry for what I said. He hasn't followed up. He hasn't said, I'm very sorry. He got up and did that straight away. Uh, he, he got up and did his, um, you know, that woman shouldn't have said that. And, and he issued a statement as well. He, and he issued a statement. Aside from that, there's nothing on, I just checked his Twitter feed because, hey, technology. Um, and there's nothing on there. There's nothing, he doesn't seem to have really... It's like a radio silence. Like, I've said sorry, and I'm not saying it again, and right. that is that. So is that. Why, why revisit it? Like, why continue talking about it? Like, seriously, why, that, why would that's you? That's his, or that's his opinion? Like, why? Well, I, I think that's probably the strategic advice he's yeah. getting from his handlers. You, know, right. you apologize quickly. The statement's gone out. People know you feel this was a huge mistake. You've talked to the premier, the premier's office, uh, right. and, and she has accepted your apology, so why do you need to keep on talking about this? Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, maybe my reaction to this is colored by the fact too that I think the two of them actually have quite an interesting working relationship. I love watching them sparring in question period, sparring in the metaphoric, not the physical sense. Uh, I, I thought that the way they sort of teamed up to handle the fire in the immediate aftermath of the fire was really effective. I mean, I don't think. I don't think that Brian Jean thinks about Rachel Notley the way Donald Trump thinks about Hillary Clinton. And perhaps... No, there's respect there. And, and, and perhaps that's why, to me, it, it hit my ears differently. Or maybe it's just that I was on vacation in Banff. And maybe not, that had something know, to do with but it. But yeah, if, if you're not plugged into the Aeolian harp that is Twitter, you're not vibrating with the, uh, with the referred outrage. So this does bring up uh, a very interesting point. If indeed this... And we talked about Jason Kenney's reaction to this. So now Jason Kenney has had an interesting development in his own little uh, PC leadership race, hasn't he, this week? That was, that was quite mm -hmm. a... Well, last weekend, the, uh, the PC executive uh, released the, the rules. And they weren't really a big surprise because the rules, in many cases, are the same rules as in 2014. 2011 and 2006 and <laughs> a lot of PC leadership races after so, years with so few there sure have been a lot in the past and few one of years. them of course is do no harm so candidates in this race must protect the brand and do nothing to um, undermine or, or uh, damage the PC brand and, and, and that's usually things like you know don't get arrested in a, uh, yeah. in, a in a house of ill repute so, don't yeah. don't sext pieces of your anatomy to people. And, don't you know, don't make Wiener. jokes about beating <laughs> women in a political speech. Right. Uh, so Just little things like that. Little things yeah. like that. So uh, this was a rule, and of course you've got uh, people like um, MLA uh, Sandra Jansen, who's looking at running for leadership herself, saying, well, look, Jason Kenny, his goal is to destroy the PC party and then mash it with the Wild Rose and form a brand new party. So that's pretty much a definition of undermining and destroying the PC brand. He should not be allowed to run. So you got that school of thought. Another school of thought is that let him run, 
and then the PCs can deal with him basically on the convention floor in March. Another rule um, is dealing with the delegates. For the first time in decades, the PCs are electing their leader through a delegate system at a convention, as opposed to one person, one vote, where everybody can buy a vote and vote, uh, like an election, basically. You've got to go through delegates. And what they're saying is that uh, of the 15 delegates from each riding, five of them must be basically existing members of the board. I'm, I'm being simplistic here. It means that the, the status quo people who may not be liking Kenny, five of them from each riding get to go to the convention and vote. The other, other ten can be members at large, basically, who are elected by the, the, the association in each riding. And Kenny doesn't like that because he's thinking, this is not being democratic. I want as many people as possible to go in and vote at the, at the convention as opposed to appointing basically five people. So super delegates. And uh, also the super delegates include the former existing MLAs, former board members, executive members, all get votes, and they're the super delegates. Of course, a couple of things here. First of all, a party is not a democracy. Parties are very undemocratic because they get to pick and choose who the candidates are, the leaders can, can have very strong powers. It's not a democracy. Um, also, you could argue that Kenny announced his candidacy before he knew the rules. So you can't complain if you say, I'm in this race, hasn't been called yet till October 1st, then they announced the rules and you began complaining about the rules. Doesn't seem to make sense. People are thinking they're trying to stack the deck against him and will they even let him run? I think they will let him run. They should let him run. If they'd be foolish. Fully, I mean, to, to, to not let him run makes them look weak and scared. Yeah, it would look really, really bad. But uh, it would be, you know, from a narrative point of view, highly entertaining to think what he would do. I mean, he's raised all this money. If they didn't let him run, you know, what is he going to do? Found his own new conservative party to merge other parties? I mean, I think they will let him run because the counterweight would be... And, and the rules don't make it impossible for him to be successful. I mean, he still, as mm-hmm. you said, there are five established members. There's these 10 other delegates from each riding to be elected. It just depends on how good of a machine he can build to, and all also, just how convincing he is as a politician to persuade uh, progressive conservatives that he is the person to lead this party and, I guess, with that bigger dream of uniting the right. Yeah, that's a very good point, that, um, that if he wins this, then clearly he has the support of the PC party. And I think that that's as a litmus test for him. Um, it's, it's a big hurdle to, to cross, but I think that if he can do it, then, then he deserves, in a sense, to lead the PCs whatever direction he wants to lead them. The question is, um, who else is going to run against him? And the race doesn't begin until October 1st. So uh, another month away before they actually even announce the race has actually begun. We're hearing different names. I think that there's people in the party, the progressives, who want to have maybe half a dozen people in the race. That way, Kenny cannot, in a sense, win on the first ballot. There'll be a movement behind another uh, candidate to try and defeat him on the floor. But the thing is, Kenny's a very smart guy, very well organized, and he's an exceptionally hard worker. So, and he's very politically savvy. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you know, we've we've talked a lot about sort of what an affront it is to the PC establishment to have him come in and basically say your party is dead, and I'm going to, you know, put a stake through its heart and merge it with a different other party. In some ways, though, he's given this race far more interest in life. I mean, if this race had just been round up the usual suspects, we wouldn't have given this. I mean, we've been talking about the PC leadership race for two months now before, you know, a month <laughs> yeah. before it's even happened. And that's only because Jason Kenney 
stepped forward. So he may not be the dinner guest they wanted, but he certainly made the guest list uh, more interesting. And you, you did actually make a point there about, well, what's he going to do with all this, this money if they do preclude him just uh, start up his own party? Someone actually asked him when I was out on the road with him, well, hey, Jason, why not just start a third party, you know? And he said, I, the problem is the NDP are in power because we split the conservative vote. Why on earth would I give them three choices? That's just craziness. And he's right. Yeah, I guess so. And another answer quickly on the rules. Um, speaking of collecting money and spending money, um, the PCs are saying that even if you right now are not part of the official race, obviously, because no one is, um, we want to we see the money that you've, you've been collecting over the summer and who it came from. And so this is another issue they want the candidates to do is reveal your financial assets um, up until this point, until October 1st. Also, money collected right now can't be spent in the actual leadership race. Um, uh. So, th- so th- there's, there's rules because the right, right now there's no rules. It's a wild west. Now, Kenny is saying that he will, he's running his campaign right now as if the rules were in place where he's limited to $30,000 from any one contributor. He's taking no corporate donations, no union donations like they do in the general election campaign, um, financial disclosures. So he is sticking by some rules, he says, so that when, I asked him though, but when will we actually get to see your list of contributors over the summer and over the campaign? He said, um, I'll stick by the rules and likely won't see them until after the leadership, um, the actual vote. We'll hmm. see the list of people after the fact. Interesting. Well, I, and just, just briefly on this and then we'll move on, but um, the NDP have said in committee um, when they're making all of these leadership rules, they will not be backdated. It won't be retrospected. So none of this, none of these new rules are going to be in place, even though Jason Kenny keeps saying that they're targeted at him. They're actually not going to be in place by the time that leadership race is, is done because they won't get voted in, in time. So All those electoral reforms that are... Oh, so oh they said rubbing their hands together. <laughs> Electoral reform. So from there, let's uh, let's move just briefly to health, some changes that are maybe going to happen. So did anyone else follow this? I know I was actually at this press you were You were conference. at the press conference. I followed your coverage of it. And, uh, <laughs> Lucky you. So Emma, well, tell, us, uh, tell us what happened. So basically the government um, and the uh, Australia, the Australian, good Lord, the Alberta Medical Association have come together. They've come up with this plan in order to slow the growth of healthcare spending in the province, which is just increasing again and again and again and again, year over year. And it's been a real problem. Part of it is changing the way doctors will be compensated and specialists as well. But it won't be all of them and they can just kind of opt in. They also want to make it a more integrated healthcare system. And part of this is something to do with the primary care deliverers. They want to make sure that people can actually get the services they want. So th- this is this is this is what was fascinating to me if you don't mind me just jumping Jump in here right is because in. the whole issue of primary care networks was 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 a, wasn't that an Alison Redford uh, she, she put a real emphasis on that and that was something the progressive conservatives introduced and the idea is that instead of you know, everyone just going to their individual doctor, that there's more of a, a collection or an, an office that has a whole range of services so that when you go into your healthcare facility, maybe you don't need to see a doctor, maybe you see a nurse or the, it's a whole wraparound service idea in an effort to the ideas to lower costs that way. And there were really two competing models. The yeah. doctors had their primary care networks and then she had a different name for them, but the family, like family, family care, care clinics. clinics. Yeah. And it was really a fight between these two, you know, 
they were both ostensibly trying to get to the same point, but through different methodologies. So we just saw in July how the Alberta Health released the report, and I'm looking at Keith's story on that, and it was a quite a scathing report on primary care networks yeah. saying that they weren't necessarily, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, or they weren't... Uh, it just wasn't getting the bright bang for the buck. They weren't necessarily following rules. There were all kinds of issues. So then that's why I find it so fascinating yeah. that now they are saying, well, this is the model that's going to save us money. And this is what is actually going to get the cost down. I don't know. We haven't seen it so far. Well, the trouble was that the primary care networks, those, those were the physician pushed ones. Those weren't the Redford ones. And the, the, the report was scathing because the idea was that, you know, you're supposed to split the money amongst the different medical professionals and Keith's story said that not only were they not doing that but they were spending the money on things like champagne for office parties uh and so you know champagne always makes me feel better I don't know about you guys I think that most healthcare policy analysts agree that the general model whichever terminology you want to use for it is the right one that you shouldn't always need to see a physician for every shot and every splinter removal right. and that there are things that a diet you know that a dietitian that a, a nurse practitioner you know the therapist can do for you that you don't always need to be going to the doctor the trouble is that that sounds fine on paper it's awfully hard to get people to give up their turf and share with other professionals uh you know i've talked to all kinds of doctors who are all in favor of of this kind of thing as long as they're still the ones in charge. Right. And it'll be interesting to see where they go with this because, and I even said to them, well, hang on, isn't this the model that isn't working? And they went, well, yeah, but we just need to expand it, but it's not working. Yeah, yeah, but see, what we'll do is we'll just change it and everything will be fine. But it is a giant shift and it's going to take an entire healthcare system basically being overhauled in the hope that it's going to save some money. And... Also, the Medical Association is yet to vote this in. In fact, they haven't even decided whether or not they're going to put it to their members. So I, I was a little uh, fuzzy on to why they even had this announcement in the first place. Is this, is this the one you, you, you had a lovely comment on social media that, you know, you talked to somebody who said you said the press release might as well have been written in Russian? Yes, that is, that is exactly what I said. <laughs> I guess these things are so complicated. I guess any step or any... Um, semblance of agreement is significant because it is so hard to even get this far right that's that's a good point yeah so i guess we'll see um if this does go to a vote it won't go to a vote until mid-october and then we might see some savings in uh 2018 but of course brandy Payne hasn't told us how much we might see but, you know but i remember save. sheila weatherall championing this when she became the head of you know the capital health region this has been this has been a long, long time in gestation. It's gestated longer than a herd of elephants. And we do need healthcare costs to get constrained. Absolutely. because and, and it's not just about costs, it's about service delivery. Because oftentimes the person who isn't the physician may actually have more expertise and skill in that particular area. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sharing, sharing amongst professionals. Well, as I say, sharing is caring. <laughs> and uh, which brings me perfectly... To good stuff from the gallery. Sarah, I'm going to start with you. So I am going to, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to recommend one piece from Nancy Peckford, a column that ran in the Ottawa Citizen. You can look it up uh, under the headline, Some Advice for Male Politicians Before You Open Your Mouth, just in regards, to, following up on our previous conversation. I also just want to throw in one other thing. Justin Trudeau has been visiting China, and there has been this whole issue about whether Canada should join China's bank. The Globe and Mail has an editorial today. I've been thinking I need to learn more about this. 
They have an editorial today, Should Canada Join China's Bank, where they lay out some of the issues and weigh in on that. So if you, like me, feel like you need to know more about this issue, give Mm -hmm. it a read. Graham. Graham's actually starting to give that a read right now. I know. (laughs) So I'm looking at the the cartoon. I always like to recommend editorials. (laughs) Of course you do, because they're so well written. And then they are an award-winning writer next to me here occasionally Um, blind squirrel finds a nut there is an article (laughs) uh, uh, the front cover um essay in the um recent edition of the atlantic is how american politics went insane oh i'm still reading it i'm halfway through it but it's really interesting uh looking at how trump is not the beginning of this and it won't be the end he's a symptom of what's actually happening in u.s politics and he calls trump a political sociopath but also he calls the same thing uh, against uh, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, people who are outside the, um, the political sphere usually and now entering it don't care what people think of them, other politicians think of them, and they're a symptom of a dysfunctional system. And it's really interesting. So he's saying, yeah, it's a problem before, they're symptoms of the problem, and it's going to get worse unless they can try and deal with this in the U.S. So it's, uh, it's called How American Politics Went Insane. Um, I, I'm actually looking stateside as well this week. Uh, just an article from the New York Times. It's really interesting read by Josh Keller and Adam Pierce. It's about how people in rural U.S. are so much more likely to end up in jail than people from cities. And uh, it, it just tr- struck me as a really odd situation, but very interesting read. That's not something I would expect. No, right? You you wouldn't expect that at all. I mean, I guess there are more people is, in cities. Is, is, so that, is that the one I, I think I saw the headline go by on social media that there's a county in Indiana that sends yes. more people to jail than all of San Francisco? It's a really great deep dive. Highly recommend it. Paula, final. Rep. All right. Also, I mean, I, I was trying to stay away from Trump stuff, but this one is really special. It's written by Garrison Keeler, who is not the sort of person you expect to be doing political analysis. I mean, he's the Lake Wobegon days guy. But he's written an elegy for Donald Trump called When This Is Over, You Will Have Nothing You Want. And it is one of the most brutal takedowns of Trump written in this very restrained sort of the Wobegon days of Donald Trump. I'm not going to describe it anymore. You should just read it. It's not that long and it's really brilliant. And Garrison Keillor, I think he wrote it for the Washington Post, but I've read it in the Chicago Tribune. Nice. And, well, I guess Donald Trump, you can't always get what you want either, which has tied this up into so a lovely, managed. lovely, I don't know. We'll little, see. Uh, lovely little package. Look, thanks so much for joining us this week. Sarah, Graham, Paula, and also Janet French, who is out reportling, reportling? I, I do words. Good. <laughs> she's, she's our education mm. reporter, and it's the first week of back to school, so she's exactly. very busy. Exactly, super, super busy. Uh, but thanks for joining us, and um, this will be online at edmontonjournal.com. We don't have a video this week because actual things caught on fire downtown, so I believe our photographers are out there. But you can um, find all of our episodes of the Press Gallery on edmontonjournal.com, on our SoundCloud feed, TuneIn Radio, also on iTunes. So you can join us this time next week on the Press Gallery. Thank you.